to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. This week is the highly anticipated meeting between President Trump and President Xi. I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center, and to get a sense of how this meeting will set the tone for U.S.-China relations, we're talking to John Pomfret, the author of *The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom*. America and China, 1776 to the present. John was previously the Beijing bureau chief for the Washington Post from 1996 to 2003, and we started by asking him how he thought the Xi Trump meeting would go within the historical context of the last 200 years of U.S.-China relations. My name is John Pomfret. I'm the author of *The Beautiful Country in the Middle Kingdom: America and China from 1776 to the Present*. So, in the Book. You start off by describing the U.S.-China relationship as、uh, what you call a clumsy foxtrot.、Uh, what do you mean by that、uh, in the context of what we're about to see this Friday and Saturday with the Trump-Xi meeting at Mar-a-Lago? So the United States and China basically need each other, but they also have a great deal of difficulty with each other.、Uh, it's the most important relationship the United States has. The same goes for the Chinese. It's the most important relationship the Chinese have. That said, there's an enormous amount of tension and, and and difficulty that exists between the two countries, but they're locked together、uh, because both countries, basically at at root, understand that they need each other as they go. China needs the United States to continue to mo- to, to modernize continually, still. And the United States needs China as a partner around the world because of the enormous number of international problems, the solution to which cannot be found unless America works with China. North Korea being one huge example. Yeah, and I mean we've seen in the the last week in particular,、um, with the U.S. State Department talking about North Korea and saying, well, if China won't help, then we'll do it our, alone.、Um, I mean, how how does that play into the current relationship? Because it sounds like the U.S. is trying to be a bit more sort of braggish about their ability to to do things on the world stage. Well, making a statement like that runs the risk of the Chinese calling America's bluff. And if America doesn't do something preemptive, then America's going to look again like a paper tiger in the eyes of the Chinese. To use the Chinese expression. That said, the Korean problem and the problems on the Korean Peninsula are particularly difficult for both countries to deal with together, because their interests are so different. The Chinese look at North Korea as basically their version of East Germany and think that if it, if it collapses, well, they're they're going to follow, and they will collapse as well. And so they believe more than anything else in the maintenance of a buffer zone between themselves and the capitalist. "Quote unquote West." The United States would be happy to see the North Korean government collapse and to end in that way its nuclear program. And so the difficulty is trying to figure out some way to align these very dissimilar interests, and that's a huge challenge for any administration, much less the administration of Donald Trump. And so,、um, in your talk earlier today, I'm sure you won't mind me saying,、uh, you said that we are witnessing the very Public education of Donald Trump on China. Right.、Um, what do you think China and the U.S. are hoping to get out of this summit? I mean, it's the first time they've met in person. What What are their aims? So I think basically this is a get to know you session, and the administration, the Trump administration, 
has thrown significant amount of cold water on any potential of any type of deal emerging from this summit. Clearly, it, in some ways, it's a very premature summit because the administration doesn't have a China policy worked out. And they're not walking into the meeting blind, but they're walking into the meeting without a real strategy about how are they going to effectively deal with China over the next four, even eight years, who knows. That's dangerous in a way because the Chinese know very clearly what they want from the United States. But I don't think the Trump administration knows very clearly what it wants from China. I mean, in the, one of the biggest revelations in the last week has been uh, from the New York Times saying that Jared Kushner has been the, the go-to person for setting up this meeting. Right. I mean, how does that affect Chinese perceptions or indeed, you know, the, the media and the public's perception of this meeting? Well, it actually follows along a long tradition of American presidents using trusted intermediaries as a way of dealing with China, right? I mean, go back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He used a series of special envoys to deal with the KMT government of Chiang Kai-shek. And that's actually continued. Uh, U.S.-China policy has generally been housed in the White House, not in the State Department. In fact, since 19, the early 70s, there's only a couple years during the Reagan administration when U.S.-China policy was made by the State Department. So from that perspective, it's actually nothing new. What adds a newness to it is the fact that Kushner's business interests actually have had significant contact with China, as has Donald Trump's. And so that adds a veneer, a potential veneer of nepotism or insider trading, that, that aspect to it which the Chinese look at with, they look at it as, look at that as an opportunity to, to, to increase their influence over the White House and to use the potential for economic benefits as a way to somehow skew America's policy towards China. Yeah, and indeed you speak slightly of um, the Chinese system has been better at playing the American system than vice versa. Right, I think... One of, I mean, I think Trump does have, has come to an essential truth, sort of bumbling, but I think he has an essential truth on China, that the Chinese have played the Americans with more success than the Americans have played China. If you look at how China's model of mercantilist capitalism has begged, borrowed, and stolen American technology, uh, you look at how America is a much more open society for Chinese investment than China is for American investment. You look at how China uses subsidies to support national champions versus how the United States has a much more laissez-faire economy, which has hurt American uh, competitiveness. These, on these issues, you see the Chinese significantly having much more capacity to play uh, America than the, the Americans have played China. So, I mean, another question that we talk about a lot here is how are well a how is she and china perceived in america but also how is trump perceived by the lao baixing in in china right well from my perspective the lao baixing in china seem to really enjoy trump everybody likes a showman and the chinese are no exception and so from that perspective, when he ran for president, there was a lot of actual support for, uh, for Trump in China, partially because of his showmanship, his sort of Broadway star power, 
but also because the Chinese really did not like Hillary Clinton. In fact, they were quite worried about Hillary Clinton. They thought that if she had been elected president, they would be facing a much actually tougher competitor than, than, than Donald Trump. And so now there is a segment of the Chinese society that is beginning to see Trump as somewhat of, of a buffoon. And if he continues to make threats that he doesn't back up with force, they will begin to respect him less and less. Uh, similarly to how they looked at Obama by the end of the administration. They just did not respect President Obama at the end because of his series of threats, um, red lines that he never, that they were crossed and, and the United States didn't do anything. You look at the South China Sea imbroglio, clearly the Chinese kept on pushing on that. The issue I have is at what point are the Chinese going to begin to test Trump? And how are they going to do it? Because that's inevitably going to, going to happen. Right now we're in this sort of honeymoon period, but the testing is going to come. And the issue is, how is it going to come? How are the Chinese going to package it? And then, of course, how is Trump going to respond? So, I mean, during the campaign, obviously, um, Trump was quite harsh against China right. uh, and trying to do American protectionism. Um, I, Ezra Vogel talks about uh, the example of the Clinton administration where um, Bill Clinton was also very anti-China before he was elected, you know, speaking about the butchers of Beijing. Um, and then once he became president, the tone had to shift quite dramatically and real politics right. kicked in. Um, I mean, do you, do you see that happening? It's happening with the, I mean, basically every administration since the Nixon administration, every president since, the Nixon, since Nixon has run on a policy plank against his predecessor's China policy. So Carter did it. Reagan did it. Clinton did it. Uh, George W. Bush did it. The only person, actually, the only president who didn't do it was Obama, but Trump did it. And now Trump is walking back his threats. So he had a 40 threat to, to slap a 45% tariff on Chinese goods. That threat's not happening. He had a threat to kind of reopen the one China policy. He's walked that back. The Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, in, in his confirmation hearing, threatened to surround China's. The, the seven islands the Chinese made, and that threat's been walked back as well. So you see this as a very public educating, education process of Donald Trump. The issue, though, is that it again feeds into this Chinese idea that Trump's threats cannot be taken seriously. And that's difficult for an American president, a difficult position to put an American president, for an American president to put himself in, because at a certain point, his threats are going to be real. And the question is, did the Chinese have the wherewithal to distinguish between these kind of bumptious, sort of ridiculous Twitter tweets and his real threats? And I, I, I don't know. That's a very difficult issue. Um, and if they don't respect the American president, we, we, we're going to have some trouble. I mean, so one of the, the main themes that you bring out in the book is looking at the contemporary U.S.-China relationship through a historical lens. Um, so you talk about how uh, both China and America have been very involved in each other's history, right. especially over the, sort of the last hundred years. Um, well, actually, over the last 200 years. Well, but. yes. <laughs> um, one of the big themes that you bring out in this book is people-to-people -people exchanges. Right. Um, and in particular, you talk a bit about uh, the role of American women in China. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of one of the, from my perspective, unchronicled stories between both countries, is that in the 19th century, once American women started to get 
a better education, graduate from college in larger and larger numbers. The job of being an American missionary in China actually was a very good one. And in so doing, uh, many American single women flocked to China as missionaries, so much so that by the early 1900s, the largest chunk of missionaries in China were single American women who were sent there in order to tap into the Chinese family through Chinese women to proselytize to the Chinese. And it, and it was that era's version of, for example, being a consultant at McKinsey or being a high-flying uh, lawyer overseas. And they were allowed, use, and, and you know, they basically expanded the definition of what it meant to be a missionary. So they went over there as surgeons. At a time where they could barely gain entry into operating chambers in the United States, they were conducting very important surgeries in China. They went over there as department chairs at universities when they could barely teach at the college level in the United States. And so China became this place where American women could go where they could be all that they could be, literally. And so from my perspective, it's no coincidence that in 1995, Hillary Clinton regains her political mojo, if you will, in Beijing at the UN Women's International, International UN Women's Conference when she made her famous speech that women's rights are human rights. And so you see in many ways China having that role, playing that role in the United States. I mean, uh, you look at America's role in educating the Chinese. Right now we have 300 plus, probably closer to 400,000 Chinese students in the United States. Not just at the graduate school or college level, but also tens of thousands now going to American high schools. Well, Chinese have been coming to America for, for education since 1870. The United States has singularly played this singular role of educating China's elite. Yes, Britain has, Japan has, Australia has, et cetera. But more, more Chinese have come to the United States than any other country combined. Uh, because we've traditionally just played this role as the, the, as the nation that has, been, that has effectively ushered China into Western modernity. And that role has continued to this day. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that we uh, just did a tour last week with Michael Sony's class on Asian diaspora. Uh -huh. So we went down to Boston Chinatown to learn about the history of Chinese in Boston. Right. Um, and it very much echoes uh, this broader national history of US-China relations. Very much so. Um, one thing I want to uh, ask you about, actually, is your time in Beijing as a correspondent yeah. uh, with the Washington Post. Um, so we have uh, a little project that we're starting here at the Fairbank Center called Communicating China. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that it looks at how China is communicated, not only in the press, but in public discourse, mm -hmm. um, and indeed by academics who are talking to public audiences. Mm -hmm. um, how do you feel like the tone has shifted, if at all, when we talk about China? So that's a, that's a great question. There is the unmistakable reality that China has become less cool in the United States than it used to be. So, I mean, you know, you wouldn't remember because you probably weren't even born then. But in 1980, I think Bloomingdale's basically turned over the whole eight floors of the department store to stuff from China. So, uh, you know, Pat Nixon was on the cover of, of Women's Wear Daily with a Chinese gown. Basically, as the New York Times said at the time, you know, China's the new it. Uh, and but that sense of discovery of China's gone, right? You know, then when I, when I, when I was living in China in the, in the early 80s, you know, it took me five hours to make a phone call back home. So I never did it. 
And when my mom sent me sneakers, she had to set me one at a time because if she sent me a pair of sneakers, they would disappear. Um, so that sense of being very far away is just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, WeChat connects people across continents, as does Twitter, etc. So China is a lot closer in a way, and China has become more, in many ways, recognizable as a quote-unquote normal place. So it's lost its veneer of exoticism. At the same time, the Chinese government has become more repressive than it has at any time. Uh, since the late 1980s, early 1990s. And that, again, has added to this sense that not only is it less cool, it's less friendly. And I think that has affected the discourse about China in the Western media. Uh, and life as a reporter in China is significantly more difficult than it was, when, for example, when I was a reporter from 1996 to 2003. It's just a lot, the Chinese are a lot more ornery, a lot less willing to give information about what's happening, you know, in their, in their think, the strategic thinking. And as a result, reporters are sort of left out, purposely left out in the cold. Whereas in the, in the late 90s and early noughts, the Chinese actually manipulated and used us in a way very similar to how the Washington administration would do to, to, to Western reporters in, in D.C. And we seem to have seen quite a big shift from the Hu era to the Xi era, um, especially in the relationship with uh, journalists. So I know, for example, that neither has ever given a sit-down face-to-face interview with a foreign uh, newspaper journal. Um, but there seems to still be a tightening under Xi that we didn't see up until 2013. Well, I think that that's, I think that under Hu, things were actually relatively tight. And I think that you saw the tightening actually start after 2008, with the financial crisis, the global recession, uh, and when the Chinese party state came to the conclusion that now was their time, and that the collapse and the descent of the West was something that was an ineluctable process, and now it was really China's moment to begin to do sort of state claims to things, um, and to do things both internally and externally that they'd waited for a while to do. And so I think the tightening really began under Hu Jintao, but it, it clearly, you're right, it has been accelerated under Xi Jinping. And as a foreign reporter, obviously, you're mostly writing in English for an audience back in America. Yeah. Um, and during the Trump and uh, Clinton campaign, we saw a lot of very negative and at times just wrong coverage of China. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the role of a foreign correspondent in China in affecting those debates? So when people make random, ridiculous claims about China in America's sort of either electronic media or in its, or in its news pages, if possible, uh, it's, it is the responsibility of Western journalists to take, to take it down, to report the fake news or to out the fake news. If, if it's within their ability to do so or within the realm of responsibility to do so. So, for example, the Trump allegation that China has been manipulating its currency. Uh, yes, the Chinese manipulated their currency a lot in the early 2000s, but they haven't manipulated it. And if anything, they're manipulating it now not to keep the currency weak, but to keep it strong. So that's, that's bogus. And I think in many cases, Western writers about China have, have pointed that out. But nonetheless, 
you know, a lie repeated numerous times becomes truth and it keeps on, it keeps on being repeated. And so it's very difficult to challenge it if it keeps on being repeated. The reality is, you know, it's not. And so I think to the extent that reporters can, they should be able, they should try to, to the best of their ability to out these falsehoods. But it's difficult, uh, partially because the beat of covering China is often unrelated or detached somehow from the narrative happening about China in the United States. And that's a difficulty. That's a, that's a difficult situation. Uh, and so, so it, it's important for journalists in China to actually continually watch how China is packaged and portrayed in their own country. And, and, and if they can do that, then actually their writing can be a lot more successful because then they become part of the conversation about China. And I guess as a, particularly as a foreign correspondent in China, you're in the sort of unique position of seeing both sides uh, very up close. Yeah, you try to be in that position. The, the, one of the difficulties, though, is that as the Chinese move to limit access, it makes it difficult for foreign correspondents to tell China's story. Yeah, it's a, an interesting sort of paradox. Yeah. Clamping down. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in that position of uh, Forrest correspondent in China and seeing things up close. Um, you've been able to obviously write this wonderful book, but you say that you're actually very optimistic about the long run of China, even though the short run between China and the US is, is quite tense at the moment. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm long term, I'm relatively optimistic because I think that one, the Chinese are extraordinarily entrepreneurial. And I think that it's clear that the savior of China's economy is going to be its private industry. And private industry is going to live and die on innovation. And innovation is going to live and die on creating a creative society. And that is going to require some form of political liberalization in order for it to continue to flourish. And I'm also relatively optimistic because we don't hear about it much, but China has actually a long and pretty incredible history of a liberal, kind of a liberal history. The history of liberals in China, it stretches not back simply to the Tiananmen Square crackdown of 1989. It goes all the way back to the 19th century. Voices in China calling for individual rights, voices in China calling for religious rights, voices in China calling for some form of political freedom or democratization, not necessarily like ours, but it's going to be a Chinese form of, of, of more political freedom. And I think that that is an, an electable, ineluctable trend. And you see it generation by generation. I, I first went to China in 1980 and all my classmates graduated and were assigned jobs. They had to get permission to marry, right? They had to get the permission to have the one child that they could have. If they wanted to go overseas, getting a passport just involved massive amount of rigor, rigmarole. Even if they wanted to change jobs, their old boss had to let them leave to get a new job. These days, their kids have huge amounts of freedom to basically determine the course of their life to a, to, to a significant extent. That type of agency is going to naturally, over the course of time, not on our time scale, but on their own timescale, bleed into the political realm. They're going to demand courts which are independent from the party chief uh, because they need predictability in order to have inventions that are protected under intellectual property right rules. 
These type of pressure will continue to build on the system and the system will respond slowly but surely over time to the necessity of creating an, an advanced economy. So I'm, I'm actually, long term, I'm relatively optimistic. I think that this line, which is somehow popular in the West, that the Chinese people don't care about politics, is silly. Everybody cares about politics. The Chinese don't care about politics because if they do, they go to jail. But over time, the Chinese people have been pretty good about pushing their government to change. And right now, I mean, what's the difference between right now and 1989, for example? In 1989, nobody had anything, right? There was no home ownership in China's cities, so people could protest on the street because they had nothing to lose. Now, a huge percentage of the Chinese people are, have a stake in the system. So what do they want? They don't want a revolution. They want evolution. And slowly but surely, they're going to get it. They just have to keep pushing and fighting. And, and they're doing that in their own way. So to tie it back into what we spoke about at the beginning of the conversation, I guess whatever really happens in the coming days between Xi and Trump, at least there is a long-term prospect for US-China relations, even if it might not necessarily be realized within the next four years. Definitely. I, I think we're going to have a lot of short-term trouble. A huge amount of short-term trouble, and I look at North Korea and also trade, of course, as being the two biggest things we're going to have to face together and figure out a way to continue this clumsy foxtrot into the future. Great. John Pumphrey, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. To listen to more interviews from leading scholars of China, check out the Harvard on China playlist at Harvard University's SoundCloud page.